Control with Robots, the podcast for news and views on robotics. Hi and welcome to the Robots Podcast. My name is Jana and today's episode will focus on physics-based optimization methods for robot control. Sounds complicated? That's probably because it is. But motor intelligence is an important step towards robot autonomy. So our interviewer Audro talked to Imo Todorov, director of the Movement Control Laboratory at the University of Washington and one of the leaders in the field of physics-based robot control. He told Audro how his high-performance numerical optimization system can be used to solve problems and discussed results in simulation and on hardware. Hi, welcome to Robots Podcast. Hi. Can you introduce yourself? I'm uh, Emil Todorov, a professor at University of Washington, Computer Science and Applied Mathematics, and um, I run the Motion Control Laboratory, if I remember correctly. <laughs> And uh, we, uh, we study control applied to robots and also biomechanics and humans. Mm -hmm. So you gave a keynote on a physics-based optimization method. Can you describe that a bit? Yes. Yeah, so uh, our approach to robot control in general is to use numerical optimization with respect to a physics model and figure out what's the best way for the robot to behave. And the way that works is you specify a performance criterion such as, you know, get your hand close to the glass or get your, the water in, in your mouth, even better, and uh, get a fast computer to search through lots of po possibilities and find one that actually works, meaning that what are the control signals I have to apply to the robot such that it actually does what I want. Um, the place where uh, the physics-based uh, simulation comes in is that Obviously, you have to ask lots of lots of what-if questions and see what works before actually executing it. And you can only do that if you have a good simulation model. So physics-based optimization, the idea is that you have a simulation model. You can much faster than real-time ask what-if questions and find something that works and then go and execute it. So what are some other similar methods or other constraints that people would use if not physics? Um, well, the most common approach to ro robotic control, unfortunately, is no approach at all, but just hack it until it works. It's sort of interesting that, on the one hand, robotics is very invited, inviting, and every kid who connects a sensor to an actuator thinks they're doing robotics, and that's great. On the other hand, you can't expect hard problems to be easy. Uh, and it, robotics is themselves often misleading, just because you, know, you have a feedback control loop, you might think that if you just tune a couple of gains and you can program a few if-then rules, things will just work. And then the dark side drags you in and you start doing more and more and more of that and you can spend years just tuning feedback gains and and writing what if uh, if-then rules and you end up with very brittle systems that don't do anything. So that is unfortunately the most common mode of operation. If you take that out, um, what are the other approaches that are left? One of them is uh, reinforcement learning, where you try to do things in a model-free way, which is you actually do even more trials than what we need to do, and, and you just try to learn from data. And so model-free way, that means you don't have an idea of uh, the system? 
almost it means that the, your algorithm does not assume that it has an idea uh, it's just trying things and collecting statistics about what happened and, and, and trying to find better actions based on that now that's the theory in practice what happens is that people almost always uh, do reinforcement learning in simulation so there is actually a model they just pretend they don't know what it is if you try to write on the real world, it's very difficult to collect the amounts of data you need for these algorithms to actually work. Mm-hmm. So, in fact, there was the recent uh, videos uh, that uh, Google released having a, a room full of robot arms that are just running 24-7 and collecting data because you really need to do something that bizarre to collect enough data to do data-driven learning. Mm-hmm. So, the big pic- what's the big picture of this research, developing the physics-based optimization? Uh, the big picture is to solve ro- robot control in a universal way. So we want to get to a point where you build a robot with all the sensors and actuators and computers. You specify what you would like that robot to accomplish, and we take over and do it for you automatically. So we basically we build the sensory motor intelligence that needs to go into the robot to operate in the real world. Mm-hmm. So that that's the big picture. Of course, that's too big. <laughs> so you have to specialize. So for example... It mostly applies to things that you can actually model with existing technology. So, for example, if you are trying to operate uh, soft materials or even liquids and such, they're, they're, you could simulate them, but you need a very computationally expensive like a finite element model or a partial differential equation. That, that mm-hmm. thing is not within reach right now. But if uh, we're talking about the multi-joint dynamics of the robot and a few objects you're manipulating, those simulations are fast enough so we can actually plan through them and use them within a control loop. Mm-hmm. And so what it, what does the process look like to having a model in simulation and then putting it on robotics hardware? So you, you can consider uh, generally two classes of, of approaches. One is that you use the model offline, meaning before you start running the robot, and you do a lot of simulation work and you encapsulate the controller into something as whether it's a neural network or some collection of um, local controllers that you switch between it doesn't matter the point is that you, you do things offline you you experiment with the model and then you have something that you can run on the robot um, that's one approach the other approach is to actually use the model as part of the real-time control loop and that's really the more interesting part and so what that looks like is that you have your robot it's collecting sensor data you process the sensor data in real time and you estimate the state of the robot and the objects around it. So that's called state estimation. Mm-hmm. Now you know what state you're in, roughly. You start at that state and you make up a plan for what you're going to do over the next one second, for example. Okay, And that's where the model-based uh, optimization comes in. Like you consider lots of things that can happen. So you make up that plan and you st- now you start executing that plan. And you execute it a little bit for, let's say, 10 or, 10 or 20 milliseconds. And then things may not go according to plan, but that's okay because a little bit later you're going to get more sensor data. You're going to detect what actually happened. Mm -hmm. And now you're very quickly going to come up with a new plan that starts at the state where the robot ended up. Okay, so it's like driving at night when you can see just a little bit ahead of you because of your headlights and you proceed this way. Correct. Yeah, the interesting thing is actually how little ahead you need to see in order to behave Mm -hmm. uh, well. So that's, that's actually has been surprising. I mean, if you plan one second ahead, that, that's enough for, for many things, in fact. Similar things, so if you look at how um, 
computers play various games like chess or Go that recently became very popular. It's actually exactly the same idea. So if you look at uh, how Deep Blue play chess or AlphaGo plays Go, what they do is they have a... Obviously, they have a model of the game, which is very simple. You put a stone somewhere and it sits there. So it's not a very interesting model, but it is a model. It's actually an exact model. There is no noise or uncertainty about it. And then what they do is they unfold the game dynamics a few moves ahead. Mm-hmm. Right, and so that's exactly the same thing as this real-time planning that we're doing. Right, so you unfold the game uh, dynamics, and in gaming, that that corresponds to a tree of some sort because uh, the choices there are discrete, and every discrete choice you make branches. In the physical world, there is no discrete choices, so you actually have an infinite continuum of, of possibilities. So building trees doesn't really make sense. Usually, we explore a single trajectory, and we adapt that trajectory in a continuous fashion but but the abstract concept is exactly the same mm-hmm. so in, in real time you you make a move you you see what the opponent did that's that's the equivalent of getting more sensor data and doing state estimation now you start from that state you plan what might happen you pick what appears to be the most promising course of action you take one move see what again. the opponent does and, and, and try it again so yeah, li- literally in in this approach we're basically playing a game with physics you can think of it that way and it all comes down to how fast your computer is and, mm-hmm. and how far ahead you can, uh, you can look. And indeed, if you look at all these uh, game-playing programs, the faster the computer is and the more moves ahead they can look, the, the better their performance is. Mm-hmm. So exactly the same thing happens with, with what we're doing. Now, so if you're going to run this on a robot, does, can you, do you have to have, so say you're running it on a small humanoid robot, do you have to have a computer running in the background that's using telemetry to communicate to the robot what to do? It oh. depends on what's, what computer is in the robot. Um, I mean, these days, you can have very portable GPUs that actually use low energy. And uh, I think we're getting to a point where you would not need that and where you could have embedded computing power that, that's good enough. But as of now, yes, it's when we do it in the lab, it's usually more convenient to have a server sitting somewhere in the corner and communicating with the robot. Bigger robots tend to have, so for example, if you look at the Atlas robot, it had two high-end pieces embedded in it, and one of them is available for user code, so that's already enough. Mm-hmm. For smaller ones, uh, it will be a couple of years before that computing power becomes available, but we're getting there. Mm-hmm. Now, so when modeling a robot's dynamics, one thing you talked about in your keynote was taking a wide variety of possible models for the robot that would span a big range of possible, I don't know, intrinsic for intrinsics for the robot. Can you talk a bit about that? Yes, yeah, so the problem with model is that if the model is not perfect, and it is never perfect, and if your planner becomes too aggressive and says, okay, I'm going to take the model that you have and I'm going to exploit every feature of its dynamics. Overfitting it, yes. It's not exactly overfitting. It's fully taking advantage of it. And if that happens to be the correct model, that's great. But if it's slightly wrong and the planner was very aggressive, it will rely on some physical phenomenon that isn't actually there. And then the whole thing crashes. So what you have to do is you have to make the planner more robust. In particular, you have to assume that your model is roughly in the ballpark, but it's not perfect. And you need to make plans which will be successful even if your model is off. And that's where this um, ensemble approach comes in, where we we take our best guess about the model, what the model should be, and then create a few different models around it that differ by, let's say, how, how big is the mass of each limb, what is the shape of the foot, um, maybe something about the gains of the actuators, like things that we suspect are important. 
and then we try to make a single plan that at least in simulation appears to work for all let's say 10 different models that we created and the idea is that if you can do that then it probably works on the real robot as well because the real robot will be somewhere in between those uh, those samples that we took there's another approach to control called robust control which attempts to do this in a more formal way so robust control literally asks the questions if you guarantee that the model errors and the disturbances are within some bounds, then we're going to give you a controller that's guaranteed to achieve certain performance. Okay, That's very good, but the problem is that's a very conservative approach and it's very difficult to scale to real systems. Actually, most of that theory was done for linear systems and extensions to non-linear systems are people doing it. In fact, people here presented some exciting work, but, but that, that's really hard. What we're doing is something a lot easier to do, which is just sampling, like sample a few models make sure it works for those, and then hopefully it works for whatever is in between. Mm -hmm. And so how do you establish these goals? Uh, the goals for what the robot should be doing. Yes. So that is where the human engineer comes in, right? So we don't want the robot to decide for itself what it should do. We want to be the masters of the robot, right? So we want the robot to be a... If you look at the original goal of robotics that I mentioned today, it, it goes back to this play, which is called the universal robots. So the idea is the robots are basically semi-intelligent servants. Like you tell them what to do and they go do some mundane stuff and then they come back and you give them more commands. So they're not supposed to think for themselves. They're just supposed to be slaves, basically. And that would be great. Uh, and so that, that's the approach we're taking. We're assuming that the human is there to specify the high-level goals. Uh, should I be reaching for a glass? Should I be cleaning the table? Should I be making the bed? That's, that's up to the human. We're not trying to do that. Uh, the question for us is, given that somebody specified a high-level objective, how do we turn it into a quantitative performance criteria that we can then optimize? And that's actually, right now, that's a bit more of an art than a science, to be honest, because there are lots of different um, functions, mathematical functions that you can write down that all have a minimum in the same place, but they have different shape, and some of them are going to yield better behavior than others, and you really don't know in advance until you try it. So the trick is to have the machinery to very quickly create different performance criteria and run the system and see what it does. And at some point, we even created a little GUI and a XML file format where you can quickly throw in some cost function terms. Mm -hmm. And then they have some kind of scalar weights that you can adjust. And we expose that in a little dialogue. And you can go in and tweak the numbers. And in real time, you see, if I change the performance criteria in this way, how is the optimal behavior of the robot changing? And even though the science behind it is not clear, it, for a human, that's actually very easy to adapt to these things. Okay. Can you give me a more uh, a concrete example? So suppose you want to walk. Okay. So what is the objective in walking? Point A to point B. Uh, okay. Why not crawl? Okay. How um, do we make it walk? As opposed to crawl or tumble or do, I don't know, handstands or roll sideways. So you see how... You start, as a human, yes, point A to point B, that's, that's a great answer. But if you try, when you talk to another human, you assume a huge amount of background knowledge and common sense. When you talk to a human, you assume that they're going to fill in the blanks. And robots don't do it, and computers don't do it in general. And so we can constantly find ourselves in this situation that we start with our human thinking, we specify something, and we optimize and say, oh, wait a minute, there's like a hundred other things to do that. And other ways to do that, and there's only one that we like, and the other 99 are ridiculous. So then we, we start adding other things. So for example, we really want you to be upright. 
how do you encode what it means to be upright? Let's say I want you to keep uh, your head one and a half meters above the ground. That's good. Uh, then how do I make sure you're not w walking sideways or backwards? Okay, so maybe your torso should be facing forward. Then um, how do I make sure that you're not doing something turning too much that could make you unstable? So maybe I should penalize the angular momentum. So you can see how one can very quickly start adding extra criteria and, and we do that the, uh, iteratively. So we, we write down something that seems to make sense. We optimize it, see what the optimal behavior is. If it's good, that's good. If it's doing strange things, then we add in a few more terms. Mm -hmm. it, it's an interesting thing because if you think from the perspective of some, the optimal control theory, the idea is that the designer specifies the performance criterion and then the optimizer finds a way to satisfy it. And so you would think that it's up to a designer to know what they want. But as designers, we don't actually know what we want. Or, or to be more precise, we have some fuzzy notion of what we want. We recognize it if we see it, but we don't know how to quantify it. Mm, all of the individual pieces exactly. that may And indeed, together. even if you look at the study of, sort of cognitive psychology and human movement control, that's actually a big open question. So a lot of people believe that the brain optimizes the commands that it sends to your muscles. In fact, one, I was one of the people who introduced that theory. I, I used to do neuroscience before doing robotics. In fact, my PhD is in cognitive neuroscience. Um, and so that, that, that's actually widely accepted right now, that optimization and optimal control is really a good theory of how the brain controls your body. But we don't know what exactly you're optimizing. There are clearly things like metabolic energy, for example. You don't want to get tired. Uh, speed, you know, how quickly you get to the goal. Accuracy, you know, do press a button exactly or do you press a nearby button but uh, there seems to be more than that and there's a, this idea called the inverse optimal control where the goal is to observe somebody move assume that they're optimizing something and you don't know what it is and try to infer what actually is their goal quantitatively uh, and uh, yes and when you apply that to, to human movements the, the answer is not always intuitive and straightforward and people are still working on it so it actually goes both ways. You can start with uh, observing some agent that already knows what it's doing and reverse engineering it or forward engineering it, as in the case of robotics. Mm -hmm. And in both cases, we, it's, it's far from clear what you should be optimizing. But, but in both of these cases, once the optimization machinery is in place and it's powerful and it works well, you just throw in different optimization criteria and just see what happens. Okay, so is that how you approach the problem of having one of your simulated humanoids walk? Uh, yes. So we, we start with the simplest possible cost we can imagine, like ideally go from point A to point B. Mm -hmm. uh, if that works, great. If not, we start adding extra cost terms until... We'll I see. And would you do things such as point the chest in a direction and keep the head above 1.5 meters and this kind of thing? Yes. In some cases. We do. Not always. So it depends on how powerful the optimizer is. So in some cases, so in some absolute sense, that there is a best way to go from point A to point B. Mm -hmm. And that best way is most likely walking, actually. But there are other ways that are almost as good. And, and so what happens in that case is that uh, an optimizer that's not very powerful can easily get trapped into one of those other solutions. And then it won't realize that somewhere far away in the search space there is a better solution. So if you have a really powerful optimizer that can do a more global search through space of possibilities, you may be able to get away with the most obvious performance criterion. But our optimizers are not that powerful, especially if we want to run it in real time. So we need to help them. And we do help. And we do help.
help them as much as we can. Mm-hmm. Does it hurt? So I assume it hurts generality, but maybe you have very short-term tasks that you try to accomplish? Um, or how do you get around this? So if you're trying to walk in, say, an S-shaped pattern, I suppose you could define, say, that you want it to face down this certain line or something. So if you want to, to follow a certain path, you usually yeah. specify the path. Like, for example, with a couple of intermediate points and that. Without that I mm-hmm. wouldn't say it hurts generality. It makes it a bit less appealing from a purist sort of intellectual perspective. Mm-hmm. But I mean, for a given time, can you explain that a little bit? All right. So, so ideally, when you talk about optimization, you'll be able to say, okay, we come up with a really obvious performance criterion, and the thing just works. But suppose we came up with a criterion that isn't obvious and the thing works nevertheless and now we know how to walk. Well, that's fine. <laughs> it, there's, that, that's actually an interesting difference between science and engineering. If we do science, the, in science the goal is to come up with very simple parsimonious principle that, that make, this assumes a little, as little as possible and explains as much data as possible. So in that case, it's not okay to say, okay, we believe our theory of human walking is that there are these 17 things that the human is optimizing. Because that starts to look like curve fitting and not like real science. But for a robotics perspective, if we can come up with a mixture of 17 things such that if the robot optimizes them, it's going to walk perfectly well, well, we're done. Because engineering doesn't have to be clean, it has to work. Mm-hmm. Now, can you tell me a bit about the real hardware that you've run this on? We use all kinds of hardware. We're actually very hardware agnostic. We try to do control in more abstract terms so it would work on any hardware. So we've been uh, working with a little humanoid called Darwin, which is actually reasonably cheap. It's $12,000. It's it's a toy robot. It's about half a meter. Uh, But but it's surprisingly powerful. So that's one system we use. We also do the same things for hand manipulation. In fact, we just won a best paper award for hand manipulation. Congratulations. Thank you. Uh, so in that case, we use very capable hands that have almost the same complexity as the human hand and like 40 tendons that are pulling on the fingers and such. Um, other simple systems that we use are multiple, uh, they're actually haptic robots called Phantom. We use them as big fingers, and so they come together and manipulate objects. Uh, we collaborate with uh, people in France, for example, who have a big humanoid robot called HRP2, so mm-hmm. made in Japan. And so for going back to, say, the small humanoid, the Darwin... What kind of tasks do you make it perform? Uh, so that, that that one is not capable of doing too many things because its hands are basically non-existent. Mm-hmm. So it can basically do full body movements walk. So we've made it uh, um, walk forward, sideways, turn. We've also made it get up from a table. So if it's lying on a table, it does a very interesting movement sort of getting up. Uh, that's just planned through through the simulator and then executed on the robot. Mm-hmm. Uh, we, we may add hands to it at some point so it can kind of run around in a little room and, and do things and move objects, but we, we haven't gotten there yet. Mm-hmm. Uh, on the other hand, in simulation, uh, we can simulate whatever we want. So we, we have all kinds of creatures, like we have flying things, we have swimming things, we have a, a guy riding a, a unicycle, um, we have hands of various things, we have um, walking sofas, we have mm-hmm. spiders. It's yeah, Building a robot in simulation is a lot cheaper than building it for real. Yes, and so in these you assign a goal and then use the physics-based optimization yes. to complete that and have it perform all these things. And like with the unicycler, you would vary different criteria. So say you would want him to stay, uh, the guy on a unicycle to stay in a fixed position, then he would compensate his balance mm-hmm. with his arms. 
and these kind of things. And that emerged out of the physics-based optimization. Yes, exactly. So that, that's a nice example where we're trying to not fall, and there are multiple ways to not fall. One is to just, if, if you tilt in a certain direction, just start driving in that direction, uh, like a Segway, basically. Another one is to wave your arms, and there may be others. And, and so in that case, the mixture of customs that we pick determines what you prefer. And we'll be able to show that in real time, you can actually change the relative importance of these terms, and then it, it switches from one sort of qualitative behavior to another, and that's a perfectly smooth transition. So in fact, thinking of these um, mixed cost terms as a high-level communication language, right? You can really say, okay, there, there are 10 things that, that I might care about, and I'm going to communicate to my robot by giving it combinations of weights. And that, that may be actually a very good way for a human to control a robot on a high level just basically giving it the priority list and being able to change the priority list in, in real time. Mm -hmm. So what have been some major challenges in coming up with this method? Um, the major challenge is getting the whole thing to work. I mean, it, the ideas are clear and most, most people know that this is the right way to do things, but it's very hard to do, so very few people actually attempt to do it. So, for example, uh, if you're going to plan it seems obvious that you should build a, the most accurate model of your robot that you can. But that's hard because the most accurate model is big and complicated and it's hard to plan. So a lot of people simplify the whole robot with an inverted pendulum and then plan through that. Why on earth would you want to do that? Well, because it's easier. So, so again, the, the, the hard part has been doing the obvious things and not shying away from the difficulties that come with it and, and avoiding the temptation to simplify. Mm -hmm. Now, what's the future direction? The future direction is to make uh, these controllers more robust. Because they work great in simulation, but we still have a longer way to go until we can run them on hardware. And that, that includes both uh, building better nominal models by doing something called system identification. So you basically collect sensor data, and you reconcile the sensor data with your physics model by tuning the parameters of the physics model. Uh, better system identification, meaning that if you have uh, sensor data from multiple sources, how do you fuse it in an optimal way and take physics into account and figure out what the world and the robot are doing right now. Um, longer planning horizons and more computing power. So, for example, we're not using GPUs right now, and we should be, except that requires a major rewrite of a physics simulator to GPUs, and that's easier said than done. Um, another uh, avenue that we have not explored sufficiently is combining the power of neural networks with this real-time optimization. So going back to these game-playing programs, like AlphaGo in particular is a great example. So they have a real-time search, which unfolds the game dynamics. But they also have this cascade of neural networks that are trained offline, and they kind of bootstrap one after the other. And at the end, what these neural networks give you is some approximate evaluation of how good the situation is from your perspective. Now, that evaluation is not accurate enough. So if you try to play greedily with respect to it, greedily meaning that I'm here in this state right now, I have 10 possible moves, consider taking each, 10 of, each one of them, see which, where I go and how good is that state according to my evaluation and pick that one. That, that's called greedy because you're only looking one step ahead. That does not work well. The players that you get out of it are, are actually not, not good. So you really need to plan through several states, but then at the end you still ask your evaluation function how good is that, right? because you don't reach the end within several states. 
the equivalent of that evaluation function right now we're not actually using and we could be using it and, and so with all this optimization that we're running there it produces lots of results that we could actually cache into a neural network or some kind of other function approximator and that's one thing that clearly needs to be done and, and i expect it to improve uh, performance significantly thank you you're welcome And that's it for today. As always, just visit our website at robohub.org for plenty more robot-related information, videos, and podcast episodes. We'll be back in two weeks' time. Until then, goodbye. Control with Robots, the podcast for news and views on robotics.